Before we open God's Word, let's pray. O Lord our God, we praise You again for the marvelous blessing that You have given to us in Your Holy Word. You have not left us without Your voice, but have provided it graciously, generously, and have provided to us Your Holy Spirit to apply it to our hearts. And that is our desire tonight, that You would come again and apply the truth of Your Word to our hearts, that we may walk with You and love You, that we may see our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may cling to Him by faith, and that we may walk in all the ways of Your commandments. Come bless us, Holy Spirit, with Your presence, and help us, for we are weak, we are needy. Come take thought for us, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans 2, our text is uh, verses 6, uh, no, excuse me, verses 12 through 16. Romans 2, beginning in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God will endure forever. Since the beginning of chapter 2, Paul has been very uh, inclusively bringing the Jews, uh, bringing those moral religious people into his extended discussion of sin, lest they think they can excuse themselves from the conversation. Uh, he, he brings them into it. We watched him at the end of the, the last half of chapter 1 articulate the guilt and the sin of pagan people, those who are, uh, to use language from our text presently, without the law, those uh, out from among the people of God, the Jews. And then he arrives in chapter 2 and declares to the religious moral people of the day, you too, you have no excuse, for you practice the same kinds of things that these pagan people do, and the judgment of God rightly falls on you. After that, the beginning of chapter 2, Paul began to describe the justice of God. If the Jews thought that they could get by without God's mercy in the gospel, 
if they ignored the continual uh, proclamation of the good news of trusting in the Savior by faith, if they were going to think they were okay on their own, Paul sets up there beginning in verse 6, he, he lays out what exactly is required of them. Okay, if you think that you're okay without God's mercy, let's see what it will take. Let's see what life will look like. And so beginning in verse 6, down through verse 11, he gave this clear description of the justice of God. It's, it's the very end of that passage in verse 11. God shows no partiality. That there is no favoritism in front of God. He, he does not act in any way that shows partiality to any party before him, but everyone receives the same. Judgment, he said earlier in verse 6, is according to works. What is due to us in the day of judgment is determined by what we have done in this life. And it's at the end of that passage and at the point where we're at tonight, at the beginning of 12, that Paul continues to address the justice of God. And it's helpful, I think, for us to consider what one commentator, Jeffrey Wilson, writes about this. As it were, if, if you're looking for just a good couple of books that give you great comments on pretty much every chapter in the New Testament, except for the Gospels, it's a two-volume set by Jeffrey Wilson, published by Banner of Truth. Very handy, very brief, very uh, punchy. It's, it's helpful. Wilson says this, Paul's object here is not only to establish the guilt of the Jew, right? Remember, that's one of the things he's aiming to do. He showed that the pagans were sinful and needed the gospel. And now he's saying, by the way, you religious people, you also need the gospel. He's trying to show the guilt of the Jew. Wilson goes on and says, but, but his object is also to vindicate the complete equity of the divine procedure in a judgment of condemnation. You know, as we read this chapter, and this whole section really, through 3 verse 20, you know, you may be wondering as we go along, when is Paul going to get to the good news? This sounds so bad, so much bad over and over again. When is he finally going to get to that point where he presents the good news of justification by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And maybe that word justify, even in our passage tonight, sort of piques our interest. We go, oh, maybe he, now he's going to talk about the gospel. Wilson is saying that that Paul's goal here is still to emphasize the sin of all mankind, but also to, to point us to God's righteous judgment of that sin. Not just to convince us that we're sinners, but to convince us that we deserve condemnation. Wilson goes on and says, This restricted design of, of presenting both sin and judgment this restricted design does not require a consideration of justification by faith, but it does demand convincing proof of man's guiltiness before God. You know, you may be tempted in these chapters to wonder, where's the gospel? Come on, Paul. Yeah, we get that. Get, get to the point. Where's the gospel? Concerns like that, in the grand scheme of Paul's purpose, miss the whole point. We miss his arguments if we're too eager to get past this beginning section. We've said it, that a significant part of Paul's reasoning here 
is to convince us of our rebellion against the holy God. But he is also trying to convince us of the proper and right judgment of that holy God that falls upon us because of our sin. It's not just that you're a sinner. It's that you deserve condemnation because you're a sinner. Paul wants us to agree with him that we're sinners who deserve the wrath and curse of God. He's trying to help us realize again and again and again, you see, that we do not have a righteousness of our own which is required in order to find salvation. It's required in order to escape judgment. He's trying to convince us that we need righteousness so that when he gets to chapter 3 and declares to us all that there is a righteousness that's been revealed from God in Christ Jesus and it is ours but by trusting in him by faith. And we get to that point and he spent three chapters convincing us that we have none of our own righteousness. And he says, here's righteousness. And what is he expecting of us? For us to lunge at that opportunity to have righteousness before the living God. He's seeking to, to move us. You see, his argument is he's, he's trying to compel us to cling to the gospel, to cling to the righteousness of Christ once it comes to us. And the way he does that is by convincing us that we are sinners and that we are under the judgment of the holy God. And that's what he's still doing in these verses tonight. He's trying to convince us of our sinfulness. And... and There's a proper place in the life of a Christian. An appreciation of the righteous judgment of God. It's kind of a strange thing to think about. You know, we have places in our life where we can sit grace and sit mercy. You know, we have places in our life where we can, we can put peace and hope and love. Where we can put obedience and disobedience. Where we can even put chastisement to some degree and jump into Hebrews chapter 12, right? But there is a place as well in our lives as God's people for the justice of God. The Dutch theologian Wilhelmus Abrakel challenges us as he reads this passage and thinks about God's justice. And as we get into the text, I want us to have this in our mind. We're going to come back to it towards the end. Abrakel writes this to Christians, Magnify God and His justice. Rejoice in the fact that God is just. Love His righteousness as you love His goodness and His mercy, especially in that this righteousness has been satisfied on your behalf. Give thanks to the Lord, uh, rather, give thanks to God that the Lord leads you and all His elect on, along such a holy way unto salvation. Do not consider the justice of God to be against you, but as being for you, not just to give you your salvation but also to justly punish your enemies. There's a right place for God's justice in our minds. It's right for us to understand what God will do to sin. And that's our goal tonight, is, is to, see, to see the justice of God and to praise Him for it. To see that His pronouncement of condemnation upon sin is right and good. And that and, and, and our response should be praise of this righteous justice that he has. Paul's continuing, remember if you think back to the, 
the hypothetical argument he's having with another, with a, with a Jew that he's speaking to. And so Paul declares in verse 11, God shows no partiality, and we may imagine this hypothetical Jew says, okay, okay, sure, sure, God is impartial in his judgment. He shows no favoritism. But what about, um, what about our possession of his law? Remember, this is a significant thing for a Jew. They were recipients of the Mosaic law, handed down from the mountain, written with the finger of God upon tablets of stone. This was the significant characteristic of their whole people. What about our possession of the law of God, Paul? We know that you like the gospel, and maybe that's good for the Gentiles who have never heard of God before. But what about us? We possess something that makes us better. We have the law handed down from God through Moses. And Paul responds, as it were, to that argument in these five verses with three arguments, three responses, really. This is Paul's train of thought. One, you may possess the law, but you do not keep it. Two, everyone possesses the law. And three, so you Jews have no true advantage. That's his train of thought. Yes, you may possess the law, but you don't keep it. And then he makes an argument to show that everybody actually has the law. And so he determines at the end that the Jews have no true advantage, even though they think they do. You may possess the law, but you do not keep it. Before God, possession and hearing don't count. Only doing counts. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So we have two groups of people. Some sin without the law, and what happens to them? They perish. And some sin under the law, and what happens to them? They're judged by the law. These are the two groups of people that Paul's been talking about this whole time so far. All who have sinned without the law, those are Gentiles. All who have sinned under the law, those are the Jews. And this may be a new phrase for us to consider with the Gentiles, this idea of them being without the law. You know, the question may rise up, well, does this mean that Gentiles are just anarchists and they're just, you know, ruled by chaos all the time? Well, that's, that's not quite what he's trying to communicate. The idea here of being without the law is meant to be a comparison statement to the Jews who lived under the law. The, the Gentiles weren't at Sinai. They weren't, they weren't anywhere to be found. Some people had come into the Jewish people, we may say, but there were no non-Jews there who received the law from Moses. Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter 2, speaking about Gentiles. They were, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers to the covenant of promise. They had no hope and were without God in the world. Those without the law, those under the law, and the statement about the Gentiles being without the law is, is, while it is about Gentiles, is meant to draw attention to the Jews who thought that their possession of the law somehow gave them something above the Gentile. There are glimmers of this belief when you consider that the Jews of this time period, 
maintained that, that the Gentiles could, could only experience the favor of God if they came under the yoke of the law, only if they'll promise to obey what God's given to us. Not trust in His promises, but, but obey the law. They thought the law was their way of following God. They didn't understand what the promises pointed to. Uh, but that starts to get away. On the one hand, you have Gentiles uh, without the law, Jews under the law, both sin. Two different ways of saying it. One perishes, one's judged. But the same results. The same results from the way of living under the Gentile and under the Jew. Why? Why is it the same? How can it possibly be the same? That's what he's trying to get the Jews to ask. How, how, how is it that, that we can live under the law and then be judged by it and the Gentile finds himself in the same place? How is it that we're on level playing field with them? Certainly the Jew would say, we have an advantage because of the law. And Paul starts off by saying, everybody's the same. It's the same destiny if you don't obey. Look at 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. Think, think morally uh, righteous-looking, regular-attending Jews. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. It's, it's not your possession of the law, Paul says, that, that puts you in right standing before God but obedience to the law. There's a few things here we need to say. This is the first time in Romans that we have the word to justify. It's going to come up a lot in further chapters. You know, we have to be careful because our idea of justification is that we are justified um, by faith in Christ, right? Through, through faith in Christ. This word means the same thing, um, is Paul suggesting that someone can be justified, that is, that somebody can be made right with God by doing the law of God. Isn't that what he says? It's not the hearers of the law who are, uh, who, who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Is he suggesting that we can be justified, made right with God by doing the law? No, that's not at all what he's suggesting. He is simply, for the sake of argument, pointing out that if someone were able to be saved through the law, it would be by doing the law, not simply listening to it be proclaimed. Does that make sense? He says, listen, you claim that you're justified by, by possessing the law, by hearing the law, by sort of attending to the ordinances of God's worship. And he's saying, if that's the system you're in, the only way you're actually going to find salvation is if you practice all of the law perfectly. He's not saying that's how they're saved. He's suggesting that their whole system, that their whole idea is, is mixed up and wrong. One commentator calls this just another uncomfortable fact conveniently forgotten by the Jew. Listening to synagogue sermons week in and week out does not save you any more than it saves the Gentiles who haven't a clue what a synagogue is in the first place. It's the same level playing field. It's not possession of the law that justifies, but obedience to the law. We face today still the same temptation that the Jews wrestled with then. Do, Christian, do you rely on your possession of the law 
to make you right with God. You know, you sit under gospel preaching, you sing songs of praise to God, you baptize your children. All of this in accordance with the law of God. Do you then assume that God owes you something? Do we live like if we just sort of keep a few things and look good on the outside, that somehow God owes us something? That's how the Jews that Paul is arguing against lived and thought and believed. We have to be careful not to begin to think or live as if these motions of religion are what matter most and that that how we live is just inconsequential. It's all too easy to fall into that. What does Jesus say in John 14? If you love me, what? You baptize your children. No. If you love me, you're Presbyterian. I mean, it helps, but that's not what he says. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And so almost as a use case, Paul next draws attention to the Gentiles' lifestyle, showing how they live by the law without actually having the law. And his intention, it's it's important to keep this in mind, Paul is not trying to say that the Gentiles are justified and made right with God because they obey something that he's placed on their hearts. He is rather explaining to the Jew and to us how, how everyone is held accountable to the law of God on the day of judgment. Look at 14. This is where Paul makes the point that everybody possesses the law. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Those who are apart from the Jewish people may not have the law of Moses through God's covenant, but they, what does it say, they do the law They do what the law requires. What does this mean? What does it mean that Gentiles who don't have the law do what the law requires? Well, it's the same. It's just, it is simply what you and I observe every single day. That those who disregard the law of God still sometimes seem to live with a sense of right and wrong. Now, this doesn't mean that every unbeliever that you ever meet is a very, very good person. There are plenty of wicked people in the world. You've met some of them. We hear about some of them. The world is going in a direction, or at least parts, parts of our culture are moving in horrible directions as a result of wicked people. What Paul means here is not, not that everybody's a good person because they, they know the law and they do the law. What he means here is that Jews were not the only ones concerned with right behavior. They weren't the only ones concerned with morality. That, you understand that's the perspective the Jews took. They said, well, we're the ones that have the law, and we're the ones that care about right and wrong. And he's saying, no, no, you don't understand. The rest of the world also has a concern for right and wrong to some degree or another. And he explains it here. He's, in a sense, telling the Jews, you're, you're just like the moral pagans. You have no righteousness of your own on which to depend, and, and all of you have the same kind of sense of right and wrong. Let's think of a couple of examples. Consider in the first place, your unbelieving neighbor 
lets you know that someone was snooping around your property when you weren't home? Does this mean that your neighbor has studied the law of God in depth and understands um, how to, to apply the law to, to right and wrong related to theft of property and possession of property? Well, no, of course not. But there is something in him, Paul says, by nature, that tells him that what's happening in that snooping moment is just not quite right. And so he lets you know. And we're thankful that they do those kinds of things, aren't we? Or consider, on the other hand, maybe um, a pagan, immoral politician successfully passes some kind of legislation that brings more protection to unborn children. Is this individual schooled in the application of the Ten Commandments and has figured out how to apply the Sixth Commandment to matters of abortion? No, certainly not. But by God's grace, even some pagan and immoral people understand that it's wrong to murder babies. And we're glad for those types of people at work in our world. But how is this? How is it that even those without the law, as he says, do what the law requires? Verse 14 says it's by nature, and verse 15 is where he he teases it out. Look at 15. They show, right, in this obedience, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Pay attention. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Now, let's be clear and separate this from another similar phrase in Scripture. This is not the same thing that is promised in the New Covenant prophecies of the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, where, where uh, the Holy Spirit is promised in the... In the, the, in the for, oh, excuse me. Where the Holy Spirit is promised to come when the New Testament arrives, when the coming of the Messiah arrives. What does Jeremiah 31 say? I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. That's not what Paul is talking about in verse 15. That's not what it means when he uses this phrase here. Paul is explaining a natural understanding of the law that goes back to the very beginning of time, the very beginning of creation. Men and women are made in the image of God, and we have his law written on our hearts in the way that Paul talks about here. Now, you know, some will say, well, but that was before the fall, and yes, we we will agree. Uh, that writing upon our hearts is like freshly written ink that's been, been moved through with the tip of your finger. It's, it's, it's smeared and smudged, certainly, but still the image of God is upon us. And Paul makes it clearer for us what is this by nature, what is this written upon our hearts, when he calls it our conscience in the middle of 15. As long as you're not thinking about Jiminy Cricket... Conscience, in Paul's use of it, is pretty much what conscience means to you and me. It's our understanding of right and wrong to one degree or another, and and our understanding of our own um, execution of right and wrong. And so when we do something, our our necks itch a little bit, if our consciences are working properly, I suppose we should say. One man says that the conscience is the innate faculty to distinguish between right and wrong and which passes independent judgment on a man's conduct. 
we see the conscience at play in, in the thoughtful neighbor pointing out what happened when you were away. And we see the conscience at play. We, we see this law written upon the heart of man at play when the immoral politician passes good legislation that protects the unborn. But we can also see it um, in society. You know, if you, can, you go pick up old missionary textbooks, if you can believe that seminaries actually have textbooks about missions, we, have, we can make books about anything. Um, you go pick up these old missionary textbooks and you'll find accounts of, of men going into areas where, where no one besides the natives have ever walked, where a Bible's never been heard of or thought of or imagined. And what do they find in those places? But a whole system of religion that worships something and a whole system of government that punishes wrongdoing. Why? Because the law of God is written upon every single human being's heart. Because we're made in His image. And we can't but worship something. And we can't but punish wrong. Because God has given us a conscience. Though we have sinned against Him and moved away from Him and rebelled, everyone is made in the image of God. And His law is written on our hearts. And so we may add this sense of conscience to what Paul has already talked about in Romans chapter 1, where he says, uh, look at verse 19. You might just have to flip a page. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. That this, in, in chapter 1, joined up with what we have here in chapter 2, it creates what our Westminster Confession writes about when it says, how has God revealed himself? Well, before it gets into the idea that, that God has revealed himself specially in the words of God in the Bible, it says that God has revealed himself to us by the works of creation and providence and by the light of nature. And it's these things that he's talking about. He made the world and he... he provides the means for the world to continue moving, his creation and providence, and the light of nature, namely that he has written his word on our hearts. This is why he says our consciences accuse us. Because all of these things, the revelation of God in his general revelation of, of his revealing of himself in nature and his writing of his law upon our hearts, Leave us without excuse before him that no one who has ever lived can say, I have no sense that I've offended a God at all, and I stand free to do whatever I want. No one can claim that because he has clearly revealed himself. Whether we're willing to recognize it or not, we are without excuse. So, the Jews thought that living under the law provided them with a benefit above that of the Gentiles. Paul says, no. No, and, and he shows them here, you see, that all men and women are made with a natural understanding of the law that, that leaves them inexcusable before the living God. And so the last thing that Paul does here is he reminds this hypothetical Jew that there is no advantage before the judgment seat of God. That's the whole movement of his argument in these verses. He's trying to get to the point where he can say, verse 16, on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges 
the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Remember the argument. Remember the movement, okay? Here in chapter 2, Paul is coming against the morally righteous, the law-possessing Jew. And you can see how he's built his case. You can look back at the chapter, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. From passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And he gets to verse 6. He will render, that is, God will render to each one according to his works. It's not about your special standing. God's going to judge by works. Verse 12, what we have before us tonight, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. In the end, what do you have standing before God in this day of judgment? You have those without the law standing before Him receiving condemnation. And according to Paul, you have those standing before God with the law, living under the law, having been given the law, but not obeyed it and not trusted the promises of it. And they also stand condemned before the Lord. He says, everybody's the same. You have no excuse. The secrets of men will be manifest before the judge and king, the Lord Jesus. The day is coming. Christian, I want you to know that yes, when we get to chapter 3, Paul will talk about justification by faith and how the condemnation that you clearly deserve will not fall on you, for it has fallen on Christ, and we praise Him. But the doctrine of justification by faith does not make null the truth of verse 16. That regardless of your standing before God, whether justified in Christ or condemned in your sin, God will judge all the secrets of men on that day. And there is a proper right terror that should creep up in your heart and mind to think that everything that you think is secret will be made known one day. He will judge the secrets of men. Now, by God's grace, that godly terror of our secret things coming out will actually help us live more in line with God's law. Fear of our God. A right and godly fear. Don't hear me wrong. We're not afraid that God's going to see our secret sins and somehow make null the gospel. No. But we love Him and we cling to Him and we follow Him and we, we do not want to sin against Him. And so a godly fear of Him as judge will help us in our obedience. Even though all secret things will be exposed, that day will be a great day. Because it will be a revelation of God's righteousness to the whole created order. Everything will be made right on that day when King Jesus judges all the works of men. So as not to end on such a horrifying note, I do want to draw your attention to a phrase that Paul uses in verse 16 that may, may stand out to you. It seems a little strange where it's placed. He says, On that day, according to my gospel, when God judges the secrets of men by Christ. What does Paul mean there? He doesn't say according to the gospel. 
And he's also saying that it's this judgment day when secrets will be revealed that's according to this gospel. My gospel, he says. Well, Paul uses this phrase when he's speaking about the message that he's been given as an apostle to proclaim. And so what is he saying? He's saying even this declaration of the coming judgment of God is a part of the message that I've been given to proclaim. According to my gospel, according to the message that God has given to me as an apostle, I proclaim this to you, that one day God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Why? Why is this a part of the message that Paul's been given? It seems a little strange. Certainly not, you know, not what most of, of professing believers in the world would think goes along with the gospel. You know, we think the gospel is that God's holy and you're a sinner and Jesus died for you and if you trust in him, you'll be saved and one day you'll go to heaven. But Paul says actually that the declaration of the judgment day is a part of the gospel proclamation too. Why? Well, in the first place, let's, let's repeat something we've said plenty of times now. Why do we need to remember the judgment day? Why do we need to remember the judgment that falls on sinful people? Well, because slight views of sin never lead to a fervent appreciation of grace. You know this. That when we don't understand who we are in ourselves and what we deserve, the gospel means nothing. You need the gospel, beloved. You need the righteousness of Christ for you. Have it not in yourself. And so Paul reminds you that there's a day of judgment coming. And yes, he hopes to instill a fear in you that will cause you to run to the only place where there is safety from God's wrath. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Where your sin has been paid for and righteousness is available. But what else? Why else would Paul have this as a part of his gospel? And I just point back to what we've talked about already that Wilhelmus Abrockel gave us. Because our God is to be praised for his justice, he is to be magnified for his righteousness. Abrockel said, Magnify God in his justice, rejoice in the fact that he is just. Love his righteousness as you love his goodness and mercy, especially in that this righteousness has been satisfied on your behalf. You see what he's saying? You need to love God's righteous judgment because it's a part of the gospel. Do you know that you can't belong to God unless your sin has been righteously judged? Why do you think Jesus died on the cross? Because we deserve to die on the cross. And, and that eternally, something we could never satisfy, but would suffer forever. And Jesus died in your place. That's what he means when he says that God's righteousness has been satisfied. It's the beauty of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that God is gracious to us in saving us, but he never, ever fails to be perfectly just because he also poured out our judgment on Christ. So he is just and the justifier of those who trust in Christ by faith. May the Lord help us that we would praise him and love him and cling to him, our just, righteous God. Amen. Father, send your Holy Spirit for the sake of your Son. And write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. 
We have no righteousness of our own. And we praise you for our Lord Jesus who has provided all things necessary for our salvation. We know that you will judge rightly. And we know that it will be according to what we have done. And we praise you. And as we trust in Christ, that righteous, wrathful judgment will not fall on us, but has fallen on him. Fill us with courage and conviction to live in the new life that we have received in him. And we ask that you might be glorified in it all. For Jesus' sake.